Hey everybody, so we're here today mostly because I was, you know, we're thinking through a podcast and it just, it felt like for me, it just wasn't coming together. And I, and I was telling Jeff, I said that, like, it just didn't feel like it was me. And so then I started thinking of, you know, how is it sometimes that I buy into the, I can't. So I thought about a previous episode where we just recently had spoken with Dr. Betsy Little and she mentioned the work of Carol Dwick and the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. And I was wondering, maybe I'm buying into a fixed mindset perspective and I should explore this a little bit more. And that made me think about, you know, what is it that we put, you know, ourselves in these certain categories or we have an I can't mentality and how do we break free of that? And how does that possibly relate to shame and the work of Brene Brown that we mentioned recently. And I think I was realizing that there's a connection behind all of it, a connection of feeling like that we are somehow being labeled and being, you know, told that we are something or buying into even the lies of what the world tells us that we are or aren't. And what does that do to us as far as being able to explore and come out, you know, grow beyond that and, and embrace the freedom that is on the other side of If you really do want to do something, is it possible? Is it possible to, if you want to do something, is it possible to to keep trying and and, and get there and be there? All of that we explore on the show today and and more. So uh, come along and enjoy the ride. sometimes I infuriate you with the fact that um, I will say, like, I'm not this. I don't do that. And then, like, I'm not a writer or something. And then all of a sudden... Then you'll write. I'll write a page or something, right? <laughs> and as soon as... Almost I give, like an hour after you, t- you decide that you're not that. Right, right, right. And so I was wondering, because, um, I mean, obviously it's, it's there inside of me somewhere, right? And so it made me think of our interview with Betsy Little. Dr. Betsy Little, um, and which she mentioned Carol Dweck and the growth mindset versus fi- fixed mindset, right? See, and, oh yeah, because that was exactly what she was talking about. Yeah. She was saying, yeah, people people say, I'm not this. I am not a scholar, right? I'm and not so, a speaker, and then they then they fold up, right? So Carol Dweck, she's a Stanford professor, and in her research, um, she's discovered sort of the the power of of yet and not yet, and I uh, looked at, like, did a bunch of research and stuff when it comes to schooling and grades and children and discovered that children that aren't doing as well with grades, if they were given a grade sort of of, of not yet rather than you failed, mm-hmm. they performed better later and they realize there's a learning curve, but they can still learn. Uh. If they get put into a category of you're just, you, you, you failed, <laughs> you're not, you can't do it, right? Then yeah. they perform they perform worse. They they give up, and uh, they, they think that they aren't able or capable of doing what what is needed to be done. Right? Yeah. And they she even looked at or doctors have looked at um, brain imaging of children that have a mindset a growth mindset where it, it somebody that doesn't they just realize they might need a little more time to learn something mm-hmm. versus children that are a fixed mindset of saying I can or cannot do X Y or Z. Right. Whether, you know, whether they're being told this or they're buying into it or whatever, but their brain is stagnant 
when you look at brain imaging and scanning versus a growth mindset where children that like to be challenged or, you know, they did like a research where there was 10-year-olds and they she gave them like a slightly harder problem than they're even age-wise should be capable of doing. Mm-hmm. And some of the children said, oh, I really like a challenge, you know, and got excited about it and performed better because they were just trying to puzzle, you know, or figure out the puzzle, problem solve and do it where other children... They're like, I can't do this, and they just give up, and they close up, right? Yeah. And they're, they don't get better. So equally, they could have probably been at the same level of trying to be able to keep going at it and figuring it out. One group buys into the fact that this is too hard, I can't do it. The other one says, oh, this is a challenge, and I want to figure it out. Um, if you tell students... They've been able to turn low schools into higher performing schools and things like that by not saying you're not capable or that you failed. You're just saying we're going to work on this a little harder. Right. It made me think of there was a time when I was um, volunteering at Augie's third grade classroom. And we were I was there on the day that they were making um, Christmas cookies and rolling out like gingerbread cookies or whatever or the dough yeah and some of the kids had so like overworked the dough that it was really hard and so i find like i i was working with a group found one that finally like i made some progress with and we were able to like properly like roll it out and um what town were we in this is in evergreen colorado yeah it's hard, it's hard baking at the altitude, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. just remember that, but keep going, yeah. So I remember the teacher saying, this group looks like they're doing quite well. Can you move along and now help one of the other tables that we're okay. floundering? Yeah. You know, I, I, it's interesting because I felt there was a level of success, say, with this group, which felt like I don't even know if we're ever going to make any progress <laughs> on mm. this dough. Like it was, you know, mm. they, you know, they add too much flour or whatever else and you can't really mold it and things like that. And so anyway, I was sort of even finding it more like it, finding it more, um, I don't know, like at the time, what do you call it? Like encouraging or whatever, you know, I felt that there was success with this group. So that was, you know, that was, I just kept going with that. Right. Rather than, Anyway, so when I finally did pay attention and help the other groups, we were able to make progress there, too. It just took a little more work. Well, I want to go back to what you were saying. So you are saying originally you were, were you focused just on the group that was successful? I helped make them successful, but I, I was... See. I was having, I didn't really want to move on from the success of the one group. So then then you're saying, but what was the realization though? The realization was that as even a teacher sometimes, that we could focus on like the small group or those that are getting it. And and it feels like you can be validated in either your teaching methods Uh, and, or, you know, what you are doing with the group because there is success there that it might be harder to even like go and approach another group and have to like come up with a new way to explain it or help them come along. Right. And start all over or whatever. So it sometimes is easier just to keep running with the students that are following along and tracking with you, right. To make, and sometimes in life it might be necessary if you're not, if your calling isn't to be a teacher, right. You know, I mean, like, right, like there's some, there's some times when you'd say, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, find, I'm going to find somebody who's a good mechanic to, to manage my, my shop, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm, I'm going to kind of semi-retire. I mean, you know, something like that. Yeah. And it's, there, it's, there's a time the and place. But if you're an educator or if you're helping people to maximize growth, 
right? That you can't, you, if the more mindset that the teachers or the people have, the helpers or whatever, mm. that this group is sort of helpless, <laughs> you can't really do much with them. Yeah. They can buy into that fixed mindset. Well, especially when they're called that, right? Like you right. are helpless. We you're a failure. It. So this is, these it. are the failures mm-hmm. and these are the advanced students. Yeah. And we label them, not, not just say where they're at. Yeah, that, I mean, it's really impor- important for something that happened to me last night, which is the kids, uh, we, we got Final Fantasy VII because Final Fantasy X was this really monumentally valuable moment in our family history where we all got together, we all worked to solve problems on this really long video game. Like At the time, it was crazy, 60 hours of of like little movie footage that was part of it. And we cried at the end, but it was great because I had this moment of everything I've ever wanted. Like it's my happiest moment where you were part of the video game, not by hacking and slashing or killing things, but you were, what were you doing? Uh, last night I was watching. No, the I'm talking about game. like oh. 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Oh, oh yeah. That, that was when I would be the po- uh, problem solver of yeah. the video game. And- so there was this cool video game where there was like an arcade feature and then there was the part that you did that was the, the problem solving, but you didn't have to get stressed. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to recover that right. experience. And so, but it's been very difficult. A lot of the time, the video games just haven't worked out. They haven't been good enough. Mm-hmm. But another big problem has been that it's very hard for an adult to learn how to work the controller and fight off, you know, 18 characters that are trying to kill your character. Right. I've, that, I have been very far forgotten in that world of video games. I used to be able to pick it up a little bit, right, and, mm-hmm. and do some basic fights at least if it wasn't mm-hmm. the boss or whatever. Yeah. I just feel like, I don't know, my mind is not, I mean, and... And I, I'm buying into this, you know, I guess then the fixed mindset, right? Yeah. I've given up on my ability to do, and it might. That's kind of where I want to go with it. It could now, be a fact, but it may not be, right? Now, what I was thinking about this is that there is absolutely no reason that you can't decide to, within a few hours, be able to control these characters and defeat mm-hmm. the villains, the question is, do you want to do right. it? Do I want to invest my time yeah. into it? So that, you, that's I, another totally legitimate question. Probably, and probably right now, not worth it. Not, I'm, not, not, I'm at, not at the space where I would, yeah. But for me, what the kids did was they didn't let me say, I'm not going to control this because I'm not a gamer. Mm-hmm. I can't do this. I don't do this. So, you know, so for me, with this video game, Final Fantasy VII, which is a beautiful looking game it just it's just aesthetically phenomenal it's an older game that they've re, re remastered re, well not remastered they redid it but i was kind of inclined to let the kids do the fighting for me because i'm not a gamer i don't know how to do it and they patiently said not that i'm a failure at gaming. Right. What would they say, Stacey, using your terminology? They said, let me help teach you. Right. right. So you this know, would be like a, it's like a not yet. Right. right. So I'm not yet a gamer. And then this morning, I was so inspired, even though I had only beaten one boss, little mini boss, I said, <laughs> almost in just, you know, kind of playfulness to the kids, I'm going to try to become better at this particular type of video game than they are. I will never be good at first person shooting. I don't care about that. It makes me nauseous mm-hmm. not the violence but the uh, the, the motion <laughs> you know have you ever played those games where you're yeah like the shooter right 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 yeah no, I get dizzy 
Yeah, you don't know which direction. It's like car sickness you don't or know. something. Yeah. So I'm never going to do that. But this one, maybe I could learn how to make my character be able to be successful. But that is, to me, an illustration of what you're saying, that there's this way in which I could write myself off or my family could write me off. Now, and again, I like the idea of what you're saying, that you might decide that you don't choose to become somebody who's competent at playing video games because right. you got stuff to do. Right. There's a certain amount of, you know, hours that you have to put into right. it and, and, and work, you know, to work towards what that is, right? But is it fair to say, based on what your insight is here, that it is not appropriate or it's not the right way to go, or it's le- at least it's not necessarily helpful for you to say, I just can't do this. That's not what I can do. I am a, a, a woman. I'm a mom. I can't play this video game. Because you could if you right. wanted to. So, and even you even said before <laughs> that it's always better to tell people if you you know if if they're being asked to do something right and and they don't want to or can't or whatever to not say I can't because then people feel like oh you're just not prioritizing this right. right? Um, yes, but you say I don't do X right. This is huge <laughs> so for can, boundaries. We were talking see, about boundaries right. last time. Mm-hmm. This is one of the greatest pieces of wisdom. I don't know who taught me this. But the thing that, I mean, I'm terrible at implementing it. Mm-hmm. But to your point, if I say, if somebody says, will you do this with me or will you do this for me? And if you say, oh, I can't, you know, I've got too much going on on my plate right now, then they're going to just basically feel like, oh, I'm not a priority to you. That's one thing. You don't care about me enough. Right. Well, certainly if I'm too tired or too busy. So if you say, I'm too tired or too busy, well, you're obviously not too busy to do some things. Right. So that means I'm, not, I'm too busy for you. If I say I can't do it, though, this is the thing. Okay. What happens if I say I, I can't do it? What do people want to do? They want to encourage you and say, oh, sure you can. I wish, encur- then... I wish encouragement was the word. <laughs> they they want to convince me. I mean, right. sometimes it's encouragement, right? They want to convince me mm-hmm. that I can do it. And the fact is I can. Mm-hmm. So I need to be in my own person, a person that has agency and says, I don't do this. I don't play video games because I'm doing other things mm-hmm. or I don't, I don't volunteer in this way. Like I don't like volunteering to build houses in Mexico because I think a lot of people in Mexico know how to build houses. I'm not saying it's not uh, you know, a good thing to do. I'm saying that's not where I want to put my priorities. It's not that I can't. It's not necessarily that I don't want to. It's that I am choosing to spend my time in other ways that I think are also effective and helpful for people in need. That might be more effective, however, mm-hmm. because of my skills, right? My particular skills, and and right. I think it's perfectly acceptable to acknowledge that. Now, if there is something that you want to do, um, and you have a can't mentality, then unfortunately, um, we're you know too quickly writing ourselves off, and we won't change. We won't right. be able to. I mean, at least the research says that those students don't perform well. Now, you might. I don't know. There might be anomalies to the whole thing, but as a as a general idea, people that are they don't have the camp mentality. They'll they can they just know it might take them more time or whatever, or they have to put more effort into something. It may be more effort than somebody else, right? Now, then I was also thinking about Brene Brown and the research with with shame versus guilt. Talking about that last week, right? And I was thinking about the the you know how she just very easily summarizes shame being I am something bad versus guilt of I did something bad. Okay. And how detrimental shame is. Yes. And that even how um, shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction 
depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders. She In both in ways. In all of her research, right? right but it's important to know, in both ways. So if you are a recipient of shame, this could lead to addiction. Mm-hmm. People that are the perpetrators or the people who are piling shame on you also can be, there's a correlation here with addiction. So it's, it's, it's across the board. It's right. like, it, they're all part of the same family. But she said that guilt is inversely correlated with those things. So I did something bad. Yes. You don't, you don't get that sort of the desperation of being labeled as something bad that you can't get out of. That's a fixed mindset sort of thing. Once you take on a label of I am shameful. Yes. Then there's nowhere to go. You're hopeless, basically. Mm-hmm. And so you turn to medicating yourself in some way, shape, or form, right? Yep. And so I, when you take sort of any time when um, people aren't allowing other people to grow, to be something beyond a label. Yeah. So you, we've talked about how uh, just... When we, um, you know, that a lot of times, you know, as Christians or whatever, one of the most harmful things that churches ever do is tell people that they are this filthy, disgusting, sinful, like totally ungodly in a way creature, right? right? This thing of, of evil. And again, this is not to disrespect the long theological tradition that says that sin has infected every part of us, that we are off course. Even the very word sin, I think the most groovy, upbeat, new age person could say makes sense if you understand sin to mean off the mark, that you're not on track. Okay, so yeah. we're always off track. But what we take it to mean in the, this is just a reset, what we take it to mean in a lot of Christian communities is I am disgusting, loathsome, unworthy of love. Anyway, so continue. Let me translate them yeah. in the Brene Brown language. Not that she said this, but I'm just you know putting her ideas into this. It's the difference of a Christian that says, I am sin mm-hmm. versus I did something sinful. Big deal. Big difference. Big, big difference. And that I am feeling a, a, a incapable on of, my own of becoming the person I want to be. This is like Romans 7. I want to do this good thing, but I don't do it. Right. I don't do it versus I can't do it are two yeah. different things, by right. the way. And that's a whole, we'll leave the theological part out for a second, but I'm with you. I'm tracking. What I'm trying to say though, is how um, harmful it is when we identify ourselves, put things in categories of can or can't and how you can't grow as a person without a a, a can do a not yet attitude, right? I'm just not there yet. Right. All of, all of creation, nature, all it, you know, it, Mm. if it adapts, it will survive. It continues. The things that don't or can't adapt, they die out, right? Right. Whatever, whatever situation is coming their way, there is a way in which people don't want you to adapt or think that you can change or be anything else if they have a power over you. Right. By keeping you in this fixed right. mindset. If you don't free yourself from that mindset, you will only always be what those people or that person tells you mm-hmm. that you can be. If you buy into that, you're not going to grow past it. Sometimes we spend, a, well, we spend a lot of our time hassling folks on the right that are 
callous towards poor people, mm-hmm. uh, callous and, and uncaring about injustice. But that doesn't take away something that we realize kind of growing up, and that is there is also a problem with a kind of modern liberalism. And I'm not talking about radical revolution. Hey, listen, when I get into a revolution, we could talk about that. I want to talk about anarchy, I'll talk about that. But there is something dehumanizing also about modern, uh, what they call third-way liberalism. Um, this liberalism that is not going to fix all of the problems of human unhappiness, mm-hmm. but it's going to give you a, a, like a welfare check that's just enough to survive, but you're a bum. Right. Yes. You're, you're a loser. You're the poor. Mm-hmm. You are the marginalized. You're, you're this person that is helped, but not empowered. Exactly. Right? And I think f- for, all, for all my frustration and anger at folks who have kind of lost their moral compass when it comes to poverty and injustice, that doesn't mean the flip side has been successful. I think the reason why we have some of the ugliness in politics today is the failure of modern liberalism to really empower people to be more than they are. Right. We want to, we or want more than they had been or more than they allowed themselves to be to use, you know, kind of this way of thinking that you're using here. Right. And so if, if getting a handout or giving a handout either way, if it puts you in a certain category yeah. that you feel that puts you on a certain level yeah. and that's where you're going the to poor. stay. Yeah. You're going to, you know, you are the poor yep. versus I'm going to yep. help the poor. Right. Right. There's these helpers that are compassionate and that's nice, but I am this miserable but stray dog. What, what there needs to be is, is that belief that, that knowing, you know, whether you are the poor mm. or not, right. that it, can change that the people think that you don't yeah. have to stay the poor. Yes. The people will help you, you not are be the in, poor. You are in this situation. We care about you because we're all connected and we want to elevate you. Right. We want to bring you up. Not because in we're the gonna, category. And, and we're not gonna bring you up just by getting you to be all bought in on like stock trading and, and the hustle. Mm-hmm. But we're just gonna help you to to find your calling and empower you. Same thing is true with churches to go back to where you were going. If I come to a welfare line and that is my reality, that I am just dependent on kind of glib, self-satisfied, rich liberals to hand me a little bit of dough Mm -hmm. so that I can continue to to maybe afford half a pack of smokes and and some top ramen for my kids and Mm -hmm. rent, Mm -hmm. that is dehumanizing and frustrating. If I am only going to church... So that I come in and I'm reminded what a piece of crap that I am, right. what, a, what an unlovable, disgusting wretch that I am, but they're going to give me forgiveness. As long as I come and maybe I tithe and it's not going to be tied directly to it, mm-hmm. but I got to come, I got to participate, I got to give, and then they will give me in exchange a little, little wave of the hand. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take away the implications of my disgustingness, but not my disgustingness. Right. And I can't get better. This is it stalls this all is a growth. this is a problem this it's, is certainly a, it's a specific especially a protestant problem in certain protestant circles but so continue i mean I, I'm, I'm i'm tracking with you i think this makes a lot of sense we have to be able your point was we have to be able to uh, think about the possibility of transformation yeah. and not labeling ourselves as something that can't get better and i think the reason we got there by the way is that 
there was this hustle that let's say the late medieval Catholic church said was try your best. Right. And we were always just frustrated that we, like, did I try, like this was a Martin Luther's problem. Did I try my best? God will forgive me if I tried my best, but did I do my best? I don't know. Right. Right. So that kind of self-talk was also anxiety laden. Right. But the alternative was, hey, you can't get, you know, for some Protestants, it's like, hey, you can't get better. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. We're not going to, we're not going to work on our relationships with others. We're not going to work on justice because that's just what liberals do or that's, you know what I'm saying? Right. And then we refuse to think that we can be something else. And in classical Protestant theology, it also should be said that the so-called regenerate person, the person who has been awakened to what we call the new logic, mm-hmm. to, to, to Christ, to a new way of understanding each other, that person in Christianity is now in a position to grow. Right. To flourish. But we tend to kind of play that down in a kind of cynical way sometimes in right. certain circles. The, if you take off the pressure of the fact that you, you, you can't be perfect. We're not going to be yeah, perfect. Good. Right. That, that, that was the, the good thing that the Protestant Reformation was bringing to the conversation. So, yes. So Jesus is that for us, right? Right. But that doesn't mean that we stay in this gross, sinful, I'm just disgusting area, right. or else we miss the entire point of what the liberation and the freedom that he's giving us, right? To use the metaphor for the student, the kids here, my kids, I am not yet a gamer. I am already a not yet a gamer. Yes. I am already included into their club. I have been given a new identity. Mm-hmm. Because the kids have been playing during the quarantine here. They've been playing some video games. And I, wanted, I was jealous of them. I want, right. like, they're all having a good time. I want to get involved in this. Right. I am not yet a gamer. But I am now, I am labeled now as a gamer with them. But I'm not yet a person who's grown into that yet. So we're right. kind of like, this, right. is, this is what, uh, what uh, uh, Christian, uh, Christian Miller who I went to visit with Dan uh, Van Voris in, uh, in his neck of the woods. He, was, he, he wrote this book on the, called The Character Gap, and you're talking about virtue ethics. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about the way you can help people is you virtue label by saying you are somebody who cares about others, or you are a scholar. That's why every, every time I email students, I call them scholars. I say, dear scholars. So I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to say that they're either winners or losers yet, but I'm saying that's what your calling is here. You're, you're called to be a scholar. And it works sometimes. You know, you, you're introducing the relationship as one in which you acknowledge that while they're not perfect, they're not perfect yet. There's a lot they need to learn, for goodness sake, and they know it. That's who they are to me. Yes, there is a scariness sometimes with even that label okay. of okay. trying to perform oh, to I keep see. Right. up like you're a, with yeah. that, right? And that I don't ever want That's you not to see me as a scholar. So yes, I am going to try really hard to continue to be a scholar, right? But it may not. It might also stifle some true freedom in myself. Uh, weak sauce. I'm throwing you out of class. I'm kidding. No, no, I'm kidding. I'm just saying I that you have saying. to be careful when, when, when a child gets known for being the smart one or, and we talked yes. about this with Alfie yes. Cohn, yeah. that when you put on a certain label yes. and you, you say, well, you are this, then, then, they gotta then, live you, up to that. then you worry about falling from those grace, those good graces. Right. Oh, but yeah. if you say, look, look, scholars, I know that you're not going to have this down perfectly. And I know that, you know, it, this is a whole learning process. It gives them the freedom mm. to then say, okay, I'm going to go on this pursuit. I am going well, to... Well, 
the 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 scholar and then not yet. Yeah. If if there's that permission right. to because they have to be they have to be given permission to fail because if if all you do is bank whether their value on their successes and not yeah. what they've learned along the way is they failure is a great teacher. We've heard that before, yeah. and I think Lao Tzu would say that. And if if we don't go and try and do things and make mistakes and learn from it. That's again, that's part of adaptation. That's part of growing. That's right. part of, you know, learning along the way. If people are too afraid to either make a mistake, they're, they're just going to be stuck and then trying to keep up this, you know, same thing. And they're not, they're not going to grow to their full potential. They just won't. So when I call them scholars, though, it's like Augie and Aiden calling me a gamer. If I say that a scholar is somebody who's an advanced scholar or an honors scholar or a top-notch scholar yeah. or a professional scholar, right. well, then, yes, I understand that that might be putting too much pressure yeah. on them. But to the extent that I'm playing a video game, I'm a gamer. To the extent that they're involved in this conversation with me as a, pro- I'm yeah. a professor and they're in a, they're in I, a school, yeah. a scholar is somebody who's in school. Right. And so I think that's part of it. I think As long as but, you're but, careful yeah, oh, yeah. that but, you aren't just, oh, and you're a scholar. Oh, you know, it's oh, that's like, it. When I put a lot of pressure on them, like, oh, oh, I've got a lot of high expectations for somebody that can be big. But I'm saying the expectation is if I take the student seriously as somebody who is in the process of learning and we're learning together, I think that's an important way to go. But what's also important from what you're revealing, I never thought of this, is I don't think of a scholar as somebody who's necessarily a good or bad scholar. That's just what they are. I see. They're policemen and Mm -hmm. women. They are firefighters. Mm -hmm. They are teachers. So like if I say hello, teachers, Mm -hmm. I'm going to expect that that's what we're engaged in. Right. Right. And, um, and that kind of labeling, I still want to stick with, especially because they're paying money to be scholars, right? Like, if they feel like, hey, I'm not a scholar, then it's really okay to not go to college. Right. Stop paying money. Stop wasting your time. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm taking, just saying as long as, as long as it's not done in a way that doesn't allow for failure and learning in failure. I've done that. I've done that. So I repent of it. I don't feel shame about it. <laughs> but I repent of this where I've had students that I thought were incredibly interesting mm-hmm. students, great curiosity, great insights and all this. And I was kind of saying, Hey, you're capable of amazing things. I also should have told them it's okay if you don't pursue those amazing things, cause they're not yeah. that amazing. Right? Right, right. Like sometimes amazing is, is not going to grad school and taking care of your grandma. Right in the last years of her life mm-hmm. so that that I mean, that's freedom, a, that, that's a powerful yeah. lesson in life. Yeah. You know, if you, and really, I, yeah. I think I've had students where, and I think my problem too, is that I've been in the liberal arts where I've had students just like me. I mean, this is, I kind of wish somebody didn't, didn't think that I had had amazing potential in certain fields. Mm-hmm. Cause I might've gone into a different field. I think I might've been financially better off if, had I pursued like, ethnobotany or psychology of religion or something like this and, and, and did it at a, like a research university mm-hmm. where I taught a class and wrote books, right? Like that would have, that would have suited me fine. I kind of like the fact is though, I do like the engagement with students, like on the day to day basis, kind of more like, um, where I get to know people. Mm-hmm. I like that. And I, I don't care about the prestige of, of a research one university, but um, but I do like the idea of maybe just teaching a class or two, you know, but I could have done that, but why didn't I? Because there were people that had these expectations that I just kind of bought into those expectations, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. the reason I studied theology is because 
I had this church community that said, oh, wow, you're really smart and this works really well. Your intellectual skills brought to this conversation make you really good at this. Right, right. I, you know, I mean, you knew you would be involved probably in church work in some fashion I preached a sermon pretty my, early My pretty sophomore early year of high school, right. I preached a sermon. I'm like, oh, I can do this. And then once you did that and, got and got accolades, and they said, well, you can keep pursuing this. You want to go to college. Nobody and... told me what ethnobotany was. <laughs> right? like, I mean, like these are things that, you know, right. so, so you don't get those. So, so, and I've done this to students. And there's also an intense stress. I was told by psychologists when I was a little kid that I'm gifted yeah. and that, that I've got this high potential. Well, now I'm sitting here struggling to say, what am I supposed to do with this potential? Yeah. What have you done? Have yeah. you lived up and to the any, potential that you were labeled with? And, and then I, sh- you know, shortly thereafter, I'm, I'm going up to Hollywood. I'm, I'm getting auditions for, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff. And people are saying, Hey, you're really good at this, but I didn't get the part. Mm-hmm. So now I feel like crap again. You know, right, <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? And it almost would have been better if somebody just said, hey, like, you are what you are, right? Like, just give it a shot. So I think I want to, in the future, I'm going to pull back from using labels that provide, that present unnecessary expectations. But certainly for a classroom, the expectation that we're going to work together to learn mm-hmm. is the expectation. And it's just, a, that's reality. Right. Yeah. So, and I do think that there are, you know, people have different skill sets. Some people things are going to come a lot easier, right? And I mean, it might be it might be really, really hard for me to learn how to play the video games. And, and maybe it, I might have to put in 10 times, 100 times more energy into it to be as good as where the kids are than what they had to, right? Right. I could decide that that's not really a valuable use of my time and my skill sets, right? So I right. think that there is... The discerning that you would have within your own self of, you know, where can you best, you know, plug into society and things like that. But what I'm trying to bring attention here to is when we buy into certain times where we maybe, you know, we have that we have a skill set or something, but we've been told that we aren't something or that we yeah. can't do something and we buy into that. And if the if I think if you are truly passionate about something, it keep keep trying. So I don't know, well, I, and maybe you want to start it, but um, I, I do know that there are some times where I see people trying to go down in life and, and, and have a certain path and it's not working for them. Yeah. And yet they're not giving up. And I, you know, I applaud them for not giving up, but mm. I also wonder at some point, sometimes you should give up. Yeah. And on that particular thing, on that particular thing. And, and I think that again, though, that's something that the person probably has to come to terms with on their own. But what we can in offer... In order for them not to... And also, you know, you know, when you start to look at... When you are trying something, I, I would say that... And it's such an uphill battle. Then what is it about it that you keep wanting to pursue that thing? Because right. I'm not saying you should give up when the going gets difficult. But when, but when you almost see every single door being closed or just the path forward, it just, it may not, there may not be the path forward, right? There might, I think looking inside and trying to discover what is it about you that I feel like in, in the way of Lao Tzu, you know, it's going against the Tao, right? It doesn't come naturally for some reason. It's, and it feels like you're trying to make something happen. You're forcing, um, a like a, a round thing into a square or, or what is it? The, the square, square peg. peg into a round hole kind right. of thing. Right. And, and I, and I think that 
a realistic evaluation of our our strengths and our weaknesses, which would just come with being able to, you know, really be able to look inside and be honest with yourself. Without right? shame. Without shame. Because, yeah, if, you know, if you're not meant to be what it is that you're you're trying, like, there is something that you can bring and, and will bring to the world that will, I think, come more naturally once you explore that. You know, what, so what are the gifts? What are the things that you are, you love to do and go that route rather than keep pushing, you know, something that just isn't working. Right. Can I give an example from my field? That'd be great. So there are people who really love history and they, they're students that are getting 4.0s good at history. And then they go and they get a grad degree and they, keep trying to get teaching positions. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I was academic dean, there would be people where they're like, hey, this is my last, this is my last chance. Mm. You know, my spouse is not going to let me keep going down this road. I'm either going to get a divorce or I'm going to have to give up on my academic dreams and go work in the oil fields or some other, you know, job that they would mention. And I mean, I'd have people, I'd have people cry. It was hard. I'd have people crying if I'm a hiring manager, if I'm, if I'm leading a search, And I'd say to somebody, well, you you know, you were on the short list. You came in third Mm -hmm. and uh, we love your publications. It's just like there were just different needs in our department and their hearts were broken. Mm -hmm. And in that person's case, one thing is academics is incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. It's very hard. Everybody's got to have like 15, you know, 100 uh, denials, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like right. on average, I mean, it's right. just, I mean, no, that's maybe large, but it's, it's, it's like that. If you, you, if you apply, see apply, a lot apply, of people, and you expect to be rejected ever more than you ever possibly get an interview. Yes. Yeah. It's constant. And, um, so I don't want to say that people should give up cause you got to, you know, keep, keep, keep going, but you got to do a couple things. One, you might have to apply to a different kind of college than you thought you were going to be working with. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the first thing. So the first thing is maybe shift, well, what, what's, what's, the, what's the kind of institution where I'm going to work? Mm-hmm. Now, the reason people can't do this is because th- a lot of times academics is based on honor and shame. Mm-hmm. We have honor, like, we'll talk about this in a second, but there's like honors societies. Yeah. So what's the alternative? Shame societies? Right, right, right. Right? Um, there are ways in which that, like, that's the commodity. Academics don't work. Uh, academics work for honor. They don't work for money. They just don't, right? right? They want the honor. So if you're going to be a... Now, some professors want to be teachers, mm-hmm. and then they could work any, like anywhere. Like, I, I don't have... I love teaching. I would be glad to get a community college gig in Kingman, Arizona, and, and have our little RV by the Colorado River and be desert rats. That's fun for me. I, I could do that. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know. well and, <laughs> and even that adage or whatever the, what you, those that can't do teach. Yeah. It is interesting because a lot of people do sort of fall into sometimes that category, yeah. but there is such a difference between a teacher that is, a is a teacher, teacher right, and right. somebody that is passionate about their subject or their right. field. And so it's that combination of the love of, of what they, you know, what they are researching the or subject what, the subject and then the ability to connect that and, and pass that along yeah. to the students. And that in itself 
is art, yep. <laughs> you yep. know? That's the whole thing. And there's so many times where I've had professors that feel like, well, they liked the subject or somehow got into it, right. and now they need to do something with it. Right. And so... And they think that they're going to... Then the only thing you can do with it is, is teach. teach. Yes. So, so, but now go with this. If, a, if an academic person, if a, if a professor, potential professor thought, I want to be a professor, mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. They've got to ask, do you, or I ask, do you mean I want the prestige of being a Stanford professor mm-hmm. or, you know, a distinguished scholar at the University of Virginia, or do you want to be a teacher? Mm-hmm. If you want to be a teacher, apply to Stanford if there's an opening and you have the cred. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem is sometimes people don't take things that could be really rewarding opportunities Mm -hmm. because they're not honorable enough. Right. They're not prestigious enough. Right. So you might have like, I if I would love someday to kind of semi retire and teach in a prison, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the whole prison system's a complete catastrophe. And the one thing that I could bring to that might be helping people get BAs in, in pre-law or something, in history, you know, in, in, the, in the local penitentiary. If you can do that, then I would tell a student that's in history, go for it. That's great. That's going to be good for you because there's going to be a lot of opportunities to be teacher. Mm-hmm. You, what's wrong with teaching high school? Is it prestige is right. your problem? Because teaching high school is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like a captive audience. And, you know, if you do a halfway decent job, that's going to be like a really powerful experience. But the other thing is, some people aren't cut out to be teachers right. at all. The problem is sometimes people are not, like, not cut out to be teachers at all. Mm-hmm. And so what do they do? And they don't realize there's paleography. Sometimes they're introverts that aren't good with people. Mm-hmm. But paleography is where you, you go back. I remember I, I studied with this guy, Henry Meyer Harding, the ecclesiastical. He's the, he was the Regis Professor of Ecclesiastical History at Oxford. Tough guy. Kind of beat my spirit up a little bit. But genius he was showing me how to how to read and understand ancient you know or medieval manuscripts how to read them how to read the latin and how to do well you can get a job it's rarefied right you can you can get a job where you are transcribing hard to read latin manuscripts that are handwritten by monks in the ninth century right that's a job and so you can do this thing but the problem is we get we get this, so, that, so this is going back to this question about the labeling. By labeling myself an academic, what does that mean? You were talking about adapt, being adaptive. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to adapt. What are those skills and what is it about those skills? And if you want prestige, maybe you could do something else. Go be an actor. Right. <laughs> if you want to be a real inquisitive researcher, you can go to the university. You know, like when we, we were in a, a, the University of Geneva, there were just people like sitting around doing critical editions of 16th century manuscripts and they were having a grand old time, but they weren't profs. Right. You know, anyway, so you, well, and as well as the fact that even, even with where you're trying to teach, are you teaching at an academic research type? In, sorry, other academic, are you teaching at a research institution or are you teaching at a teaching institution? Yeah. Right. Right. Like where are your skill sets? If you aren't, wanting to do a lot of the research, then you shouldn't go to a research institution. <laughs> right. Same thing. Right. Right. Some people, some people hate their jobs because they realize it's like this kind of publisher parish gig right? and they don't want to publish. Right. So fine. They don't need you to publish at community college or right. at like a you know, or high school. No. But why do you do it? Same thing with, same thing with people that want to get into law yeah. or get into, 
to med school or, or whatever. And if they, if they keep coming up against it, and I, and I, one last thing on the academic, uh, dear listener, giving you, some, uh, giving you some job tips for a tough economy. If you are in the liberal arts, if you like an English, like English, you want to be an English grad student, history, even psychology. If you've got to pay through the nose to get a grad degree, to get a PhD, you probably shouldn't do it. In most fields, with the exception of theology, if you can't get it funded, if you can't get a stipend where people are basically paying you or at least making it free or low cost for you to complete your PhD, you probably shouldn't do it. With one exception, if you already have a job, let's say you you have a job at a liberal arts college and you have an MA in English and you're an English prof and you've got a full-time job and it's, it's stable, then it's great to pursue the PhD so that you can advance. Right. But the idea that you're going to go get a PhD in English and then they're going to roll out the red carpet for you and give you a, a teaching gig, is, uh, that is not true. That is the tragedy. And so we have to adapt when we come against those things. And I think going back to the earlier thing we were saying with Alfie Cohn, people are under a great deal of pressure when they get labeled, even in positive ways, mm-hmm. to perform. Right. Also, I mean, the same thing goes for if you want to be an actor, an actress, right? Yeah. If you can't get an agent that is willing to represent you and that they want, you have to pay all great, this money. <laughs> great illustration. You have to keep paying all this money no, in order for them. You don't want any agent whatsoever that's asking you to pay money. Right. No, sir. Because the no, whole sir. point yeah. is if they think they can sell you, then they will make their money that way. And that's if they the Dow, don't baby. think that they can sell you, then they want you to pay them for their time because that may be all they're going to get. Yeah. And or I, they're probably charlatans. Right. You know, they're probably hustlers. Yeah. Right. And I think lawyers sometimes the same thing when they're going to take your case. Right? So sometimes, sometimes life, you know, that was that, that phrase, when, whenever God uh, closes a door, he opens a window. Uh, that's not it. You know, but, but, or something like that, right? But, but there's a way in which the, the, the natural flow of things does provide this. Yeah. yeah. So as a whole... The species in general, nature in general, adaptation is huge and key for survival. Yeah. And nature is, like I said before, it's always changing, adapting. And I was thinking even like the coronavirus, right? Mm. In order for it to survive, it keeps having to adapt. I in think fact, it's adapting too much if you ask us. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, so what does COVID-20 right. look like? What right. does COVID-21 look right. like, right? It, it will die out as a thing if it doesn't continue to adapt. Mm-hmm. And that's how things succeed. Think about even, there are a lot of people that have taken this time and this opportunity to creatively switch up their business a little bit. Yeah. Or pursue things they wouldn't normally and right. then s- switch it so that, you know, think of even some of the, the businesses that have maybe like switched to making other products and things, that, yeah. you know, just to stay alive and survive, right? The more- Shout out to our friends at Casey Jones Distillery <laughs> where we uh, stayed when we were traveling across country. They are now not making moonshine. They're making hand sanitizer. You can pick it up online. I was, I was just reading a little brief comment about somebody that uh, they had a business where they would, would sell vegetables and things like that or whatever uh, produce at farmer's markets. Well, they switched it to a delivery business and they are brilliant. They, they've hired now two more people. They uh-huh. need a refrigeration. Hey, van. Wait a minute. We should get in on that. So we don't have to go into the, the, the grocery stores. 
Well, they had, I mean, they also had the, the produce to start with, right? You have to have, you know, I would. I'm not saying we should get into the distribution. I'm saying we should use farmers because we were sad that we don't get to go to the local farmer's market anymore because they shut right. that down. If there are local places, you could see if yeah. they are offering delivery yeah. and, and, and fresh produce right to come. record this nonsense. <laughs> right, to your house. But I'm just saying there are people that have learned this isn't how I've always done it, but this is right. in order for my business to survive, this is what I can do to adapt. That's then, also serving the Dow, baby. That is flow the with the flow, and that and that's what I'm trying to say is that if if at any point we get stuck in our ways, we think of with the I can't mentality or I'm not that mentality. We aren't going to be adaptive. We aren't going to be able to change, and change is key to survival. Change always. You have to. Yep. You have to learn how to adapt, yep. or those species will just go away. So I think this kind of comes into even hate your parents. Yes, you're. It's 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 not the actual hating of your parents. A teaching of Jesus that we discussed in a previous episode. It's Check just it not getting stuck in a way of other people telling you how to be or exist, right. and it's learning. Like how how can you flourish? You know what what is it that mm. that you are sort of meant to do and how can you not listen to naysayers you know what we should have said stacy on hate your parents hmm. I, I know we've talked about it it means hate your genetics and by by which we mean um we have become who we are as a species because of adaptations we needed thousands of years ago i think it was i think it was duncan trussell who was was talking about this, and I, and he, he was saying that that I think it was I think it was Duncan Trussell, but that there are some people who are born into the world ready for a fight, be, maybe because their mom when they were in the womb they were um, like inundated with stress hormones, mm-hmm. so they're itching for a fight. They're not like their soul isn't necessarily more evil than other people. Mm -hmm. Their soul isn't, but their body is ready to go. Their body is, is like alert and afraid. We know this of like feral cats or something like the ones that survived are the ones that were paranoid, feisty, would claw at strangers, right? Mm-hmm. And now we live in a world where those aren't adaptive anymore. Mm-hmm. Those aggressions being violent, might have helped our ancestors. Mm-hmm. We're all descended from people that were more violent than the people that they killed. And those people that died didn't make babies. Right. So the people that made babies are the ones that had the disposition for anger. And, mm-hmm. and the ones that didn't hid in the hills and they had a disposition for paranoia or anxiety and fear. And some so, of them survived because they mm-hmm. had that. But what we need to cultivate for ourselves is to kind of grab the reins of our own biology as best we can and to... We can't change it, but we can hate it in the sense that we can do, disavow that violent tendency. I can see and acknowledge the violence in me. I can recognize it without feeling shame, but I don't have to give into it. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So can you change? Can you, you know, adapt? Can you, you I like know, this. it no longer serves you. Yeah. If it doesn't serve you, then if we can shed it, we will be able to move forward. I right? suspect, you know, we'll have to talk to somebody who knows about like, you know, the neuroplasticity and so forth, you know, again on this one. But I bet that one of the biggest problems is that we can't change certain things. Yeah. I cannot change the fact. I cannot change the fact 
that when you are having a hard time getting out the door, it causes me great anxiety. No, right. Yeah. yeah. And well, I can, I can change my behaviors in response to it. You can also anticipate, yes, yeah. that this is going to happen right. and not always fight against reality. Yes. That it will. And I can work on, yeah. I can work on trying not to do that. Maybe, to you, right. You know, I think the bigger issue is, but you have more yeah. power over you than you right. have over me. Right. So if you can anticipate me doing this and then figure out what do you do with yourself during this time that doesn't involve you just getting more and more worked up and frustrated. Right. And, and now in a terrible mood that will, you know, affect the rest of our day. And then you feel judged. And I'm like, I just need these things, baby. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable leaving out, you know, leaving the door without all of my, all of my things that I'll make sure. And, you know, and that even is a survival thing, right? Like I've learned to make sure I have certain things that in place and so that I don't leave the comfort of my home without feeling, I guess, the sense of security that I have certain things in place before I leave. We may have talked about this before, but it is really, it was really interesting when we were in the Mycological, the Snohomish County Mycological Society up in Washington State, where they had said anecdotally, this is kind of an anthropological insight, that women tend to button hook. They go about when we're foraging for morels or chanterelles or something, the women button hook after going about 100 yards in and the men just make a beeline diagonally out as far as they can go. Both are adaptive. From and we need to honor hunter, ourselves. And gathers, yeah, we right? need to honor ourselves and others. Like our ancestors survived. The ones who survived had men typically going as far as they could to find where the deer were were migrating mm-hmm. and killed them and brought them back. And then, as people like say, if they were nomadic, as they moved along, there'd be other people, typically women, perhaps, that circled back and made sure they didn't forget the poultice that was going to be good for pain right. or the, the, the nourishment for the babies or, or whatever it was that was necessary for survival. Cause sometimes you save the day by remembering to bring stuff. Right. Now right. think about this. If there is some, a lot of times I'll it, say, right. you know saying, yeah. and if there is, if there is this huge disaster and it requires us fleeing at the spur of the moment, you need me to help you get the hell out of here because that's going to be, it the doesn't real, matter what know. I bring with me when I've got nowhere to bring it. Right. Or more importantly, <laughs> if you get incinerated, right? That's what like, I'm trying to say. Right, like, this if is I've my got nightmare. nowhere to go because yeah. I can't leave because I've lost the window of being able to that kind of thing. Yes. Then I wouldn't survive. You know, if I'm, you know, if there's word that a tornado's coming, right. Yes. And I don't, get into safety somehow, then there's nothing to save when it comes and takes out. For 22 years, this has been my recurring nightmare that there is some cataclysm and I am trying to get out of town and throw everything into the car, but you're not getting in the car. Mm -hmm. And then the mushroom cloud comes or or whatever it is, right? right? And at the same time, I think what's important for our relationship and for people in general is to respect the value of these insights and these leanings. Right, so that together we don't stay too long or go go too fast. Mm-hmm. Those are important. Mm-hmm. I need to be prepared as we leave. You need to get the heck out of the house. Yes, we need to be merciful towards each other in that process. Right, as well, because be- yes. because like because they're adaptive and because they're natural, there's no shame to be had. Mm-hmm. But there is a negotiation of what's prudent. And I, and I also think an honest evaluation of what it is I think I need before I leave. And, and are these things actually offering me 
a security or something or a safety that I need? Or is it something that I can actually go without for a little yeah. while? You know, like, do I actually need those headphones or do I need my phone in general? You know, I think a lot of times we get so, you know, are we keep our phones you know, next to our hips, right? Or right. Always on us. And sometimes the best right. thing is to, to give us space from it, right? Yeah. So I guess what I'm trying to say is being able to let go sometimes of even maybe the irrational part of, you know, what I think I need in order to be prepared enough to leave the house is a healthy thing for me yes. to evaluate and to also adapt to. I just read somewhere a quote saying, when you label me, you negate me. Mm-hmm. And I took it as, oh, you know, you label me as a Christian or you label me as a Republican or a Democrat in categories, right, that you negate me. And that is true, that we do sort of already come up with a whole framework. And it, it's a shortcut in our brains, and it does help us to process things and, and to move quicker. Our brains sometimes are hardwired for certain shortcuts, right? Yes. It's efficient, right? Yeah. We learn efficiency. I think sometimes we need to unlearn our efficiencies in order to truly grow and grow past what we put these labels, you know, or, or in, you know, that we either give labels to people or even put them in these categories and label them. If that makes sense. Oh yeah. And that when, when we don't let us let, let ourselves just constantly take the shortcut route and we actually listen to people and we actually believe, you know, in the fact that there is, that people can change and they can adapt. So, Stacey, the, the, I just looked it up here. The attribution is to Kierkegaard. Sir, in Kierkegaard, if you label me, you negate me. Mm-hmm. But he probably didn't say it exactly like that because it was, um, it was in a journal. It was in the 1976 Journal of uh, Marriage and Family Counseling. But it was not attributed there. So it kind of gets passed into modern discourse. Mm-hmm. You were saying it was probably somebody from a... Like an it ancient. was an ancient philosopher that built a bridge between Eastern and Western thought. But Kierkegaard did say something similar to this. He says, um, for instance, um, uh, put me in a system and you negate me. I am not a mathematical symbol. I am. So he, this is why he would give himself, he would like kind of, um, he would use pseudonyms when he would write. And he said, for instance, I don't want to be called a Christian because like, what that label is for a lot of people, mm-hmm. the idea of Christian, I don't want to be that. So these labels, he, he does talk about that in existentialism and really in many ways, existentialism is on track with what you're saying here, that there's this idea that when you say I am this mm-hmm. and then you're lacking freedom and what Jean-Paul Sartre following these other existentialists said, for instance, in, in Kierkegaard is that that gives you this out to not live truly human, authentic existence. Yeah, so I, if I, if I, if I, if I believe that I can't get better, if I believe I can't get, do anything different, then, um, this is how, like what Sartre was saying was allowing people to put up with the Nazi takeover of France or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything about it. Right. And the reason they say this is because freedom is terrifying. Yeah. It just debilitatingly frightening right. when people say you can be anything you want to be like, Oh crud. Then it's what? easier right. when you just tell me what to be. Right. 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 I yeah. can fulfill this role or people already think I'm this. So I can just, mm. you know, be this and think about even um, what, what is the attraction to um, so many authors using pen names? You know, yeah. they're, they're not, they're trying to not get labeled or categorized yeah. sometimes, especially 
you know, in, in the past, women mm. authors, right? That, that oh, took, yeah. took male pen yeah. names, right? But again, that's precisely what Kierkegaard was saying. He wanted to be able to explore a theme and push it as hard as he could without having to answer for it himself necessarily. He wanted to say, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to write from this perspective. I'm going to push it. Mm-hmm. I might even use hyperbole. But by doing that, I think that was a really, in, that was a really interesting move for him and what he was doing. Anyway. And I, and I think it's important that freedom is a, a gift. And you said it's frightening. Yeah. Right? And you can, you can embrace it yeah. all you want. And you don't have to if you want, if you want to just fall into a role. Somebody will help you. <laughs> you know, it, <laughs> Somebody will give you, you know, your role for you if you really if need you to. If you need to. Then, I guess that's okay. Then that, that's fine too. There's, there could be safety in that, right? Not, mm-hmm. We are all... We, we all have, you know, different roles here. We mm-hmm. all have, you know, and I, I don't think that any one thing is the right thing, right? And in that, um, I, I think not everybody, not everybody's a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is don't allow people to stuff you into a role yes. that doesn't fit. Especially one that serves their needs and crushes you. Correct. You don't have to be destroyed. You don't have to be dehumanized. It's hard to get out of it. If you're in that situation, if you're in those loops. And I'd also say if you're afraid of freedom, yep. then what about it are you afraid of? I, afraid of the shame of failing, probably. Right. 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 So then evaluate that. Can you deal with that? And if you can deal with that. Let go. You can let go and find deep peace upon peace. To close out our show, we're really excited to have, by permission, a nice track that really blew my mind from my friend and colleague Steve Zank. Steve is an amazing musician and he shared this one with me and I just I asked him if I could use it because I loved it so much and I want to share it with you. Steve Zank's a colleague with me at CUI. Check him out. Thought that.